Welcome to Season 2 of Voices from the Land, a special podcast series produced by the Legacy Hope Foundation. In this podcast series, we'll hear about Indigenous language revitalization projects and efforts to preserve and promote Indigenous languages across Turtle Island. Join us as we learn more about how Indigenous languages are helping Indigenous peoples connect, know, and remember the voices from the land. Hello and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous languages. Voices from the Land is an Indigenous language podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Its goal is to capture more perspectives and voices on Indigenous language revitalization. We are seeking to capture a range of perspectives to better reflect the many people engaged in Indigenous language revitalization. Our aim is that by listening to teachers, adult learners, and parents or guardians of children in language classes, or whose children have taken language classes, we can gain more insight into what are the challenges and barriers, as well as the solutions and positives that are out there. In turn, we hope this will form a larger discussion on how to support Indigenous language revitalization. In this episode, our guest is Bonnie Whitlow Kawanago. She is a teacher and a parent of a child in a language immersion program at the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory in Ontario. Hello and welcome. Glad you could join us today. Thank you. Maybe we can start with you talking a bit about your background, uh, your community, and your family. Okay, sure, I can do that. So, hello everyone. My original name is Gwanagu. My English name is Bonnie Whitlow. Uh, and I'm a member of the Mohawk Nation. I have been, I guess, recovering and revitalizing that cultural legacy, including language. Well, actually, I, I started with the cultural revitalization probably in the early 90s, doing a lot of work with a lot of different teachers and mentors all across Turtle Island uh, from all kinds of different nations. And then right around the turn of the century, I started with studying Ganyogeha, but it had actually always been my dream to speak Ganyogeha. And I remember the first time when I was in just your standard Canadian school and in grade two, they tell you, you can turn, you can learn a language. And so I said that I wanted to learn Gunyogeha. And they told me, oh, you can't do that. You can only learn French. And so I went home and I complained to my mom. And I said, mom, I don't want to learn French. I want to learn Gunyogeha. And she just said, you can't do that. you got to learn French. And that's the first time that I remember really being disappointed that I couldn't learn Gunyogeha. And I was, we're raised in the community right beside the res. So we were dispossessed of that kind of teaching and the connection really early. Like, I mean, we still spent every weekend with our cousins and our family on the res, but it never like occurred to me to think, why am I living off the res and not on the res? And so it was because my mom lost her status when she married my father. My father never had status because his mother lost her status when she married uh, my grandfather, and then my great-grandmother lost her status when she married my great-grandfather. So because of that, both my 
my father's side of the family grew up right across the road from kind of Mohawk Road or and town line. And then we were raised over here in the village of Onondaga, which is, I mean, I'm right on the river. And on the other side is the res. And at the corner of the road is where the res starts. So I grew up just in your standard Canadian curriculum as one of, I think we were two or maybe three families who were off reserve and going to a school with just a general Canadian curriculum. The second time that I remember uh, wanting to learn my language and hoping it was an option was when I went into high school. And again, you can choose a list of different languages that you can study. And we had German, Spanish, and French, uh, all colonial languages and no option for Ganyakeha at the time. This was like, I'm really old. <laughs> so this is back in like the mid eighties. And then the same thing happened when I eventually went to university. I wanted to learn Ganyakeha and it wasn't an option yet. And that was in the early nineties. And again, you could learn like dead languages like Latin ones that people don't even speak anymore. You could learn several African languages. You could learn all kinds of European languages. There's probably maybe 30 or 40 languages that you could study, and none of them were ancestral languages to this space. And then in my, I think it might have been my second or third year of university, they had a one-off. It was just a, you know, a basic introduction to language, but it wasn't what we have now. It was simply rote memorization. This word means this, and this other word means that. So it wasn't really like you could take a word and, and work with it or change it or modify it in any way. It was just one word, one phrase. That was it. There was no context for the rest of the language. Mm -hmm. And it would be another probably close to 10 years before I came across this community program where I studied, Ungawanaganjokwa. And Ungawanagunjokwa is now being heralded as one of the primary spaces where language recovery is happening regularly. So we are creating lots of second language learners who are fairly effective in the language. So I bought into that early on. I can't remember. I'm going to say around 2002. And so my language journey was simply that I went to this, this community evening class once a week, and I immediately, immediately saw, immediately that I would be able to take words and modify them and use them in different contexts. Even if I had never heard a word before, I could try something or I could create something. I could just guess. And people would understand what I was trying to say. And if it was wrong, they would give me the actual word that I needed. So I just became a dedicated uh, supporter, an avid supporter of all things related to language revitalization. I went a fair ways with the language, but not all the way. Like I'm not a superior, a distinguished level speaker. But what I noticed about it and the reason that I fell so in love with learning the language was that it absolutely rooted out colonial thought and gave me the worldview of my ancestors by learning how 
they said something. It wasn't so much what they said, it was how they said it. And each word had this huge cultural legacy around it. And it was just so empowering to actually start to think and see the world through the eyes of my ancestors by understanding how they would speak about something. So that's a little bit about me. That's pretty awesome. Is that, uh, you're talking about, uh, I'm just going to go off script here for a bit. Is that the root word method that yes. you're talking about? Yes. That's, yes. Uh, I heard about that with Brian Miracle. Do you know who, you, who he is? Do you know Brian? You must know. Oh, yeah. Brian. He was yeah. my he was my teacher. Yes. And he still is my hero. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the root word method is the foundation, but the, it's the it's really the blend of several different very effective teaching tools that creates uh, this bridge between English and the colonial mindset and that ancestral paradigm that we're all looking to to be under, right? That umbrella that we want to cover ourselves with. So it's not just the root word, although the root word is absolutely the core of everything. It's how they use the color coding. It's how they use the TPR. It's how they use, um, I think it's the Rassius Foundation methods to make it fun and enjoyable and turn everything into a game. So it's, there's like a lot of laughter, there's a lot of camaraderie, but there's also a lot of healing that goes along with it, right? People start to really have a lot of emotional or experience a lot of emotional turbulence while they're learning. And they don't always recognize immediately that that's part of the healing process, right? So uh, I think sometimes people underestimate the amount of uh, healing that is going to happen as they start their journey. I think I'm going to focus on asking you questions from a teacher's perspective, mainly because uh, I was just looking at our, just glancing over our schedule here. And uh, we have talked to a, a lady from your community already uh, from a parent guardian perspective. So we'll focus my, our questions on you as a teacher. So the second question we have here is, you are an Indigenous language teacher. Did you take a course to become a language teacher? And if so, can you describe your experience, what you learned and how you prepared, how prepared you felt teaching an Indigenous language in the classroom setting? How did you feel? Like, how, how, what was your experience coming into a classroom and, uh, and, and teaching uh, an Indigenous language? Okay, so yes, I've had a lot of experience with teaching. I tried a couple of education courses about teaching, but I didn't take an actual, like a teacher's course or teacher's training or anything like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because early on, like I was an early adopter. So I came into this when everything was just starting. And when Owenadeka asked me to teach, I actually said no. So I had gone through his course in order to learn the curriculum and to learn how to use the language. And then there was nothing after that. There was no place to go. And we had had this really interesting experience where we went to one of the other reserves where there were a lot more first language speakers still. And while I was there, I crossed paths with a lady who would eventually become a clan mother for uh, the Bear Clan. And she lived in Agwazasne, and she just said to me that she has been walking around the Confederacy for about 10 years, 
and telling people if they're interested in learning the language that they could come and live with her out there. And at the time, I just said to her, I said, don't say that to me unless you actually mean it because I'll do it. And she said, I mean it. If you're interested, you can come and stay here. So I immediately went home that weekend and I went to our employment and training agency, uh, Grand River Employment and Training. And I said, I had this opportunity and would they help me? And so I reached out to their survival school in Aguazasne and I asked them if I could come there and just like be a tutor or just be in the school. And they agreed. But I also found out that they were also teaching a third year adult immersion course. And I had only taken one year. And I said, well, I've only taken one year. Is it still possible for me to come in and sit there? So I just spent eight months in Aguazasne. And in the morning, I worked in the school. And in the afternoon, I went to the adult immersion program. And then in the evenings, I lived with a family and they were all speakers. So I'm also pretty creative. And so I was able to assess what parts were difficult for me and then make materials that would make it easier to teach. Not to mention that Awanadeka at the time, Brian Miracle had just said, here's all of the materials, take it, use it, share it. If it works, it works. So when I had come home for Christmas, he asked me if I would be interested in teaching the next year, the first year program. I said, no way, <laughs> because I didn't think that I had the capacity to do it. I didn't know enough yet. And then I came home at Easter and he asked me again and I said, no way. <laughs> and then the last or when I finally came back home for the summer, he changed the question and he said, what is it that stops you from wanting to teach? And I said, I just don't have enough language. I don't have a big enough vocabulary and I and I just didn't feel ready. And so he said, what if I taught the root word method section? And in the afternoon, he would bring in a better speaker. So um, he brought in Dehande Frank Miller, who was another really great teacher. And that was it. I was on my teaching journey. So the first year, I was kind of like the root word method linguistic stuff. And he was all of the natural language and the oral drills and all the rest of it. And then the next year, after we went through that, and he gave me the language that I would need it was after that, then I said, okay, I have the language to be able to teach the first year. So I was first, I was their TA, and then I was the first year teacher. And then I was their second year TA, and then I was their second year teacher. So it went on and on like that. And I just became a teacher through uh, watching great people teach and modeling my, my practice and modeling my my curriculum and my pedagogy off of what they were doing and what was effective and then trying to find like creative ways uh, to bring myself into it. Okay. Now, as a, as a teacher, um, you teach in a classroom setting in a public school. Tell us a little bit about the setting and, and uh, where you teach, who you teach to, like the, the age range of the, uh, of the students that you teach. Okay, so currently what I'm doing is I'm teaching at the university. 
So originally I was teaching in the Ongawanaganjoko program and adults only. I did a short stint helping in the public school. But since then, I've been teaching at the university and it's just a basic introductory course. So it's with adults and I really just use the Yungawana method. And I would say the one thing that I really focus on the most is making sure that I'm not simply contextualizing our language and our teachings into an English and a colonial framework. I'm trying to do the opposite, actually. And so what I always try to, I use the example of the word for love in order to explain what I mean by that. So if I were to teach just about the word for love, and if I were to say, this is how you say I love you, and I say, gunulunkwa, and you say, that's how I say I love you, gunulunkwa, but it doesn't make sense. And that's like a really superficial, superficial translation that doesn't give you the rest of the information that really comes from the cultural context. So we also become these cultural translators as well as language translators. And so what I always talk about is if you have gunarlunkwa, there's the gun part that has a certain unit of meaning, the nolung part in the middle has a different bit of meaning and the part has a meaning and the wa part has a meaning. So gun is this bound pronominal prefix and it means I to you. So the direction is always I to you. So gunarlunkwa. But if I were to say like dagenolunkwa ga, do you love me? I would have to change that prefix in the beginning. So oh. gun, there's this thing that's happening. And then the nolum is the verb root, but nolum is a completely different word. So if I were to say ganolum, um, I would be saying that it is something that is expensive, but that doesn't even mm-hmm. completely tell you what it means. Because when we're talking about expense or cost, we're actually talking about how much something is valued, right. how precious it is, how unique it is how special it is to you. So that word is inside of gunarlunkwa, right? That kind of information is inside there. And then there's this part at the end, this section, and I think it's called an instrumental. And that instrumental is the method of how what is happening in the sentence happens. And then the part at the end is the habitual. So it tells you it happens all the time. So when I say gunarlunkwa and I tell you, or if I were to teach you that it just means I love you, then you're missing all the depth and you're missing all the profound wisdom of ancestral uh, thought. And so what you're actually saying is that there is a method that every day I show you and I teach you how valuable you are, how precious you are to me. I have to show you that every day, habitually, that you are special, that you are unique, and that you are valued, which is a completely different way of looking at love, right? It's Mm -hmm. all about the action. It's all about the things that you do to demonstrate that that person is special or valuable. So those are the things, 
those cultural translations that are inside of the words that are way more important to me and way more empowering to the students when you share that as opposed to just sticking with contextualizing our language into an English framework. Right, yeah. That does us a disservice. So every single word is like that. You mentioned the university where you teach. What university would that be? Laurier. Laurier. Mm-hmm. Okay. And where is that? I work at the Brantford campus, but oh, okay. there's also a campus in Kitchener and Waterloo. Okay. All right. Next question is, uh, when you're teaching, uh, whoever you're, you're teaching students or adults, young people, do you change uh, your style of teaching depending on the age group? Or do you use the same style with all groups, uh, all age ranges? Yeah, I use the same style for all of them. Okay. I'm really about trying to motivate and inspire passion for the language. And so I found that the root word method or really the whole Ongawanaganjoko pedagogy is just malleable and it works in all situations. In your teaching experience, what are the biggest obstacles to success for your students? Mm, Fear. Fear. I would say fear. Yeah, I think that is, I would, that is the number one thing. So I think because we're all raised in this kind of colonial education system where there's this punishment piece where everything is about a mark and about competition with other people and that there's this need to be right. And all of those things make it difficult to teach somebody when all that you're trying to do is to engage them with the material. They have all of this baggage and all of these barriers that they carry with them as a result of the school system that they've, they've come out of. So they're scared to make mistakes and they're scared to be imperfect and they're scared to stand up and they're scared to be wrong. They're scared to have other people think that they're dumb. They're worried that, or they view laughter as humiliating as opposed to um, camaraderie. And so I find that the biggest obstacle that adults have is just being okay with being wrong. Right. You're going to be wrong and you're going to make some epic mistakes. I can't even <laughs> I can't yeah. even tell you the really bad things <laughs> that I've said that where people just go, oh, don't say that. That's yeah. that's the wrong thing. And I'll be like, oh, and then I'll take on their word and then I'll come back around like in a day or two and say, can you tell me what I actually said? <laughs> And then they kind of, sometimes they might not want to tell me what I just said because of the the nature of it. So yeah. I've made some pretty epic mistakes. Yeah. yeah but also, I, I don't care. I don't care. Like, I don't have that thing where I care about <laughs> being right. I am completely aware that I don't speak well enough for like the high level stuff. Yeah. And I know that I'm going to make mistakes. And so I think teachers in particular have to be aware of that. And teachers have to be aware of the power and authority dynamics in a classroom 
and they have to kind of just be really aware of their students. So there's something that I'll do and I'll know, like I even just will watch a student when they're about to speak and I see some of them like tighten up, you know, like their, their muscles and their body tighten up. Sometimes they stop breathing because of the fear because they're holding on to things. And, and so I have to like, I'll do things where I'll just like sit down beside them or sometimes I'll like go down to the floor and, and just like uh, bend down beside them so that I'm not like in a higher position than they are. And then I just have to keep saying, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be wrong. Just try. So just getting people to try and to trust me enough to try and to trust me enough to be okay with making mistakes is a lot of the work that I think our teachers have to take on. So it's the emotional burden, I think, that really prevents people from giving it their all because they've been taught by this Western system and they have all of these negative associations with being wrong. Right. Uh, what would you say is a big challenge for your school in improving success for the students? No. <laughs> school lacking. Funding. 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 It's always funding. It's always precarious funding. Yeah, it's just underfunded and precarious. Precarious so you, meaning, meaning, meaning you can't attract uh, high quality teachers because you can't guarantee that you're going to have a position for them the year after. You can right. bring them in for one year. And it's all dependent on this precarious funding cycle and you always have to apply. And so uh, the people who are working in these grassroots places are completely underfunded. And because here's something that I recognized from doing a jury for uh, language applications. What I noticed is that places like district school boards and universities, they will ask for the moon. They will, they have no problem saying, I need $1 million for this and I need $100 million for that. And like, they'll just ask for the moon. And then everybody from a reserve who writes an application is writing for like a third of the amount of money that district school boards were asked for the exact same thing because all funding on the reserve is precarious. And we've gotten used to these grassroots conditions. And so we don't expect more and we do a ton with a lot less. And so just funding is primary because we have some great teachers who we can't keep in the program simply because all the universities and the well-funded spaces, um, that's what they need. You know, like you need to live in a house. You want to be able to buy a car. You know, you want to be able to put your, your child in athletics and you can't generally do that in grassroots language recovery spaces. What would you say is going well or is a key factor in your school or program in improving language learning outcomes for your students? You mean in the one that I'm teaching or in Ungawanagunjokwa? Because I would prefer to answer that for Ungawanagunjokwa. Uh, yeah, I guess um, whatever indigenous language you're teaching in 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 Take your pick. What would you say is going well or is a key factor in your school or program in improving language learning outcomes for your students? What is working well that's making your students successful? 
I think Adongoana Gunjoko, which is the adult immersion program on the reserve and not the one that I'm teaching at, at the university. So at the university, it's not a full immersion situation. It's not like it's it's really just an introductory course, essentially. So there's not a big overarching goal to create speakers or to revitalize a movement. Whereas on the reserve, that's what it is. This is about being able to help reconstruct everything that was lost through the Indian Act, through all of the social policies, through genocide and colonization, through being in Canada. So Yeah, speak on that, on that one. Yeah. So at Ongawanaganjokwa, there is this passion. There is this overall rejection of all things Canadian and all things colonialism. And uh, there is a passion for the students who are coming in. Generally, what happens is there's some sort of um, event that precipitates this turn, right? So things like Oka, which was my time when I was in university, Oka is what really, really woke me up. And then there's been things like unity runs that wake up students. So we did unity runs just before I became a teacher. And then three or four of my friends that I met on the unity run actually left the university because they weren't interested in the university. They were interested in the revitalization of ancestral knowledge movement, which is what's happening at places like Ongawanaganjokwa. So it's the passion of the students and the passion of the community and finding like-minded people in class with you and students that went before you. So the alumni, we're in all kinds of different spaces now. So because we were young at the time, I think we made it cool in a way, or I don't know if it's cool, but we were doing like really dumb things with the language and playing with it in a way. And we were playing with it in public spaces. So instead of just hearing it at Longhouse, all of a sudden you had all of these people who had gone through the Ongawanaganjoko program who were then walking out and like crossing paths with each other at the lacrosse games or at the grocery store or, you know, gee, at a bar or, you know, in a restaurant. And as soon as you saw another student, you went over and you started talking to them. And there's always a lot of laughter because you're making epic mistakes, but you're also doing like really stupid things with the language that maybe the the people who actually are first language speakers get mad at you because, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're saying dumb things like, the one that I used to translate all the time was like, ooh, look at that bad boy. <laughs> and then I would say, ooh, which actually means look at that child who is behaving badly. Yeah. But, you know, like, it's funny. Another one that we used was don't go there, girlfriend. And we'd say, right? So like doing silly things like that and making it kind of cool or funny or... I don't even know if it's making it cool, but like make it making it viral or making it trendy or whatever. Like just being stupid youth, doing youthy things. Stupid fun. Yeah. 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 Having fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just making people laugh. Yeah. Now your community, uh, uh, Six Nations, uh, obviously it sounds to me like the community is behind uh, language revitalization. What are some things that the, the community is doing like uh, to, to support the success of language in your community? Hmm. Well, 
there are some things that have happened that have been a real boon. Right. So, like I said, I was in early and back when we were going into the program, I actually went from a a job that was, I don't even remember, I think I was making like $40,000 a year at the time. And I was renting a house on the reserve and I had to take this vow of poverty. And I was lucky because at the time I was single and I could do this. So we went in and we accepted a stipend of $150 a month. What's a vow of poverty? Yeah, a vow of poverty. Sorry, not $150 a month, $150 a week. Okay. Right. So that meant that I couldn't pay for anything. I had to give up my car and the insurances that went with it. Um, I gave up like just everything, my TV and my cable. Why? Because I couldn't afford it because I was oh. only making $150 a week. Oh, okay. I see. And so then I was working like as a, as a waitress at the local like greasy spoon because it was somewhere that I could walk to and I could uh, work a few hours in the evening and, and still go to school. Actually, I remember my brother at the time who, who he came in and he saw me working at the greasy spoon and he just gave me this look and he said, you went to grade 17. What are you doing working as a waitress? And I just said, this is what I have to do in order to <laughs> to learn my language. So because it was so hard for us, we advocated heavily everywhere that we could so that students were at least getting $300, which was still not enough, especially if they had a family. But there were a couple of organizations who started to sponsor students and recognize the work that was going on at Ongolwanukunjokwa so our students could actually come in and get a little bit more funding. And I think it's actually up to $350 a week now which seems like huge, (laughs) a huge improvement, but it's still not big enough, you know? So, so there's been that there's been just the uh, recognition in the community of the work that's happened through Ongawanaganjokwa and how other languages are now uh, really looking for the magic behind the root word method and trying to adopt it into their languages. And that's happening all over the world. And really, I think this is something that uh, Ryan uh, was talking about. A friend, Ryan, who is also a teacher at a different university, he was saying that the other piece of magic is the, the community that has been created of second language speakers. So because every year or two, there's maybe another six to 10 people who have graduated a couple years. So it's no longer just a one-year program. It's now a two-year program, and they're looking at a three-year program. And so because of that, there is a community of second language speakers who all are supporting each other in all kinds of different ways. Would you say that um, what the language program you're doing on the reserve, is it, uh, is it immersion or not? It is immersion. So it starts out, I think, till... The first break, the first winter break at December, the first three months, there is some English that's used for context for translations. But after they come back in, after that first three months, they're expected to not speak English in the classroom. And this is uh, for adults, right? Uh, Adults, Not not, uh, high school students? No. Well, and how long is it, how long is it 
during the days? Like, is it an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours? Uh, the immersion program is from nine until three. Wow. Wow. And that's what you're talking about when you say you get funding. You're getting funding yeah, to actually attend this. Yeah, they get this. funding. And where does the funding come from? Um, the band or government? Or? Um, some of it is government funding. Yeah, it comes from different pots. I'm not exactly sure of all yeah, the places yeah. it comes from. One of them is from our traditional government. Yeah. Some of their funding, some of their savings goes towards this. There's been a few times where there's uh, donors who have given funding for different things like student support. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a barrier then, uh, you call it a bit of a barrier that you're not guaranteed this for no. a 10-year period or five-year no. period. Yeah. No. So you got to look for it almost every year, year to year. Every year. Wow. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. But we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I just we do what it takes to get it done. Right. Determination. Will to do it. Yeah. yeah I really think Owenadeka just willed this to life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sheer nice. will. Force of will. Yeah, and he didn't even speak the language when he started, right? Yeah, that's quite amazing. Is there anything else you would like to add or share about improving Indigenous language learning? I think the other thing is the recognition for it. So while we are recognized on the reserve and we aren't, there is still a problem with other programs creating teachers where those teachers who have a little bit of language are preferred over graduates of Ongawanaganjokwa. And right. that is a huge problem yeah. because those teachers can't speak. So there's this like really awkward um, moments where the people who have the degrees as language teachers are functioning at a much lower level of people who are graduating from Ongawanaganjokwa and who are actually the good teachers who are making the differences and the changes that need to happen. So there needs to be an equivalency. There needs to be an accreditation taken on. But the expertise of the people who are coming out of that program needs to be recognized by outsiders because it's recognized in kind of the Indigenous language revitalization movement by everybody across the nation they all hear about Ongoanganjoko and what they're doing there yeah yeah but their teachers and their teachers like we're the ones that are actually out in the universities teaching because we've done other things right and we weren't even I don't even know if everybody was going to be a teacher but that's not the only thing that you can do with the language either I mean there's so many things that are happening now So I want people and I want students to know that it isn't just about being a teacher. There's been opportunities afforded to me simply because people know that I'm a Ganyagaha speaker. So in a, I was even in like a a movie or or not a movie. Was it a movie? It's like some sort of series. It's an APTN thing where a director reached out to me because they needed a woman who speaks Ganyagaha. And so she knew that I spoke Ganyagaha. So I got to be in a movie. What's the name of the series or movie? Uh, it's on APTN. It's called, oh, I actually no. I think it's called 1491. 1491? Yeah, it's something about like pre-contact. It's some okay. sort of series. It's like a bunch of episodes. I haven't watched the whole thing. I only watched. <laughs> I only watched the part to say, "Look, babe, there I am." Outlanders. 
Yeah, but I want people to know that those types of things are out there. And that's not the only time that I've been sent a script for a movie just because I can speak. Yeah. You know, so there's these opportunities and our people like our students are just, I don't know, they're out there doing everything, making all the differences in all kinds of spaces now. Yeah. It's been 20 years. Yeah. I think the program has been around for that long. At the, I don't want to say the lowest point, but uh, I mean, your language, I mean, all indigenous languages are like thousands of years old, and they began to lose them when uh, colonialism started in, in, our, in our country. And at what point uh, would you say was the lowest point in your community in terms of language loss? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the majority, like in some communities, they're probably like, uh, 90% of the members don't speak the language anymore. Like, at what point would you say that your language was really critical, coming close to being extinct in your community? Well, it was only deteriorating, right? The pool of speakers we were only losing for, gee, you know, the, through the residential school era. Um, and a lot of people point to the arrival of television yeah. in homes as a key factor in in destroying our language uh, pool. And I think for us at, at Six Nations, and really for us as the Mohawk Nation in all of our territories, it was before Ongawanagunjokwa. We were only losing speakers up until Ongawanagunjokwa. Really? Yeah. And Ongawanagunjokwa has been responsible for restoring and creating new second language speakers. And we now have babies who are being raised in the language. I tried to raise my son, but also I couldn't do it and I couldn't do it alone. And I had no family members who were in the program. I just had friends. So uh, when he was little, I got rid of my TV. I didn't listen to the radio. And I tried to only speak Geha to my son. But there was a time when he was about three years old, or maybe, maybe just after two, when I realized I didn't have the precision to just stay in the language with him. And I remember this one time where I wanted to brush behind his teeth. And so I was trying to say to him, I need you to open your mouth. And I could say teeth, I could say tongue, but I couldn't say the tip of your tongue. I need you to put the tip of your tongue against the roof of your mouth, right? So it was the precision stuff. And I just started to realize that I didn't have the capacity and the language myself to do what I wanted to do with him. But also he needed to engage with family members. And when I was like, nobody could babysit for me because they didn't know what he was trying to say. And so he had a list of like maybe 50 baby words that I would just keep adding to. So it was like, if he's saying he has, uh, he needs to go to the bathroom. If he's saying he's hungry, if you're saying he's hot, if he's saying it's cold, if he wants a juice, you know, like here's all of the things that he's saying, but nobody knew, like nobody could take care of him and he couldn't talk to people. And so I noticed that I had to use um, English. And then because I... I was taking on this 
position at the university, I needed to send him to daycare. Mm-hmm. And at daycare, nobody speaks Ganyat Geha. And so I had to let him learn English. And so there was maybe like a couple of years and then he was in grade one. And, and I actually put him into French immersion because if he couldn't have Ganyat Geha, then at least he could have another language that he was operating in that wasn't just English. Mm-hmm. So I put him into that and then he was doing these really cool things with language where he was just saying whatever he knew. And so he said to me today, mama, mama, got new in my jaune gazole. <laughs> and so he was saying, where's my yellow car, mommy? Yeah. And he just like mixed them all together. And it was really cool. But also I realized that I just didn't have the capacity and none of the kids that he was with were actually speaking there was like French and English. That was his only choice. So he didn't want me to speak because he didn't want to stand out. Mm. And then when he turned eight, was it eight? I think mm-hmm. there was this moment where uh, we would be traveling to the other communities and people knew that I was a language speaker. And so they would start speaking to him and he stopped being able to understand them. And then he got embarrassed because they would say, oh, doesn't he speak? Because there was these expectations because I spoke that he would speak and he got embarrassed. And one time he was just like really upset and he didn't want me to tell people that he couldn't speak anymore. And then he said to me, he said, mommy, I want to be, I want to go back to the immersion school. I want to learn my language. So immediately I was like, I did whatever it took to put him back into language. And he's been there ever since. Excellent. Very interesting discussion. And thank you for uh, taking the time to do this with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You're doing wonderful things. and. Uh, uh, it's really fascinating to listen to to you talk, and I think we could talk and listen to you much longer. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty yeah. passionate about this stuff. Yeah, so. it comes across it comes across that way. And and on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation and and uh, the Indigenous Language Project, uh, thank you very much again for taking the time. You know, I know you're a busy person, so yeah. Voices from the Land is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca.